This teaching comes to you from the team at Anchor Church Sydney. We hope you're blessed by it. For more teachings, resources or info, check out our website, www.anchorchurch.com.au. Heavenly Father, gracious God, thank you that you are a personal God. Thank you that even now, Lord, you are drawing close to us by your Spirit. And so I pray now, Father, that you would give us soft hearts to receive Open ears, clear minds, Lord. Free us of distractions. We don't want to just do church. We want to hear from you. We want to encounter you. So please speak to us this morning, I pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Well, this morning I want to preach to you guys on the topic of the plot twist. The plot twist. Anyone like a good plot twist? Anyone? I love a good plot twist and... um, I had, a, I had a great time thinking about all the different examples I could use to talk about plot twists. But I'm going to throw one up on the screen. It's uh, the movie Shutter Island. Mmm. Yeah, yeah, some people have seen that. And uh, this movie came out in 2010. And basically, it's about, uh, it stars Leo, as you can see. And uh, it's about Leo. He plays this character called Teddy Daniels. And he's this U.S. marshal who goes to this island uh, where there is a mental asylum, kind of like a fictional version of the island of Alcatraz where there used to be a prison. And it's where they send all like the craziest, most messed up, insane people. And he goes there because they have lost a patient, an inpatient called Rachel. She's disappeared. And... As I said, this island is kind of, it's in the middle of nowhere. It's surrounded by water, so they've never lost an inmate before. And so this is really crucial. He goes to find her, and he's also heard that perhaps the killer of his deceased wife, Andrew Latus, is actually on the island as well. And so he goes and he has this, you know, he has this motivation from his job to go and find this missing patient, but he also has this personal motivation to find the killer of his wife, And the movie takes us down this series of twists and turns and you feel like he's getting a little bit paranoid or the staff who work at the mental hospital, like they're being really just like private, like they don't want to share any information with him. And it's like, what's going on? Like, why are these guys not cooperating? He starts to to worry. He starts to freak out and he, and he, he talks to all these different patients and doctors and there's this series of twists and turns and it all comes to a climactic ending on one of the final scenes of the movie where he rushes up this lighthouse to find this killer that he's been on the chase for the whole movie and plot twist, he is actually the murderer. Whoa. It's like you've seen the movie. He is actually the murder. In fact, he's actually one of the patients. And his wife had a serious bout of depression. She drowned their three children. He found her, snapped in a fit of rage, killed her, was admitted to this mental hospital. And he's been having these severe bouts of schizophrenia. And this whole movie has been a game, has been an exercise that the staff and the doctors have been participating in to see if he would break out of his schizophrenia and realize who he really is. But he doesn't. Plot twist. Another uh, plot twist that I really like is uh, The Good Place. Now, if you have The Good Place on your list of, you know, your Netflix list that this is coming up to watch, copy your ears because I'm about to give it away. I'm not, that's, this is not a joke. And so The Good Place is this comedy uh, about what happens when you die. 
You know, the good place, you go to the good place, or do you go to the bad place? And Kristen Bell is the main character. Her name's Eleanor, and she wakes up in this room, sitting on this couch, kind of looks a bit like a uh, psychiatrist waiting room. And this guy called Michael comes in, and he's like, hello, Eleanor, I've been waiting for you. Come on in. And so she goes in, and she finds out that she is in the good place because she was a really good person. And as series one kind of, uh, as season one kind of unfolds, she comes to this realization that, oh, she doesn't actually belong there because she's not really a good person. She doesn't, she doesn't belong in this heaven-like utopia. And so she makes friends, this guy called Chidi, who's an ethics professor, Jason and uh, Tahini, I'm sorry, Tahani. And she hires or she, she makes friends with Chidi and says, Chidi, teach me to be a good person because I really want to stay in the good place. And so Chidi's teaching her how to be a good person and things start going wrong, like there's some natural disasters and the good place starts to kind of implode in on itself and you're thinking, what's wrong? And you're, and you're kind of led to believe, well, this is all happening because she doesn't actually belong here. She's actually a bad person. But you get to the final episode of season one and plot twist, you find out that they're not actually in the good place. They're actually in the bad place. And the whole world that they're in has been constructed by these demons disguised as people as a way of torturing them by making them think they're in the good place, but they're actually really annoying. And so they, they have heaps of conflict and they don't like each other. And that's the big plot twist. And you're left sitting there on the couch of your apartment with your wife thinking there's three to five months before the next season comes out and what's going to happen? <laughs> plot twist. They're so unexpected. They're so captivating because they surprise us. They catch us off guard. And in the passage today, Jesus has his own plot twist where he surprises the religious leaders and the teachers of the day, perhaps even his own Jewish people who would have been listening and watching. He surprises them with what his mission is and who he came to call. And what he reveals is both surprising and unexpected to the people of the day and perhaps to us as well. And so if you have your Bible, flick open to Luke chapter 5, or maybe you've, you've got it there, keep it open. And for context, where we are in the gospel is we're in Luke's gospel. If you're not familiar with the Bible, this is one of the books uh, that tells the story of Jesus' life. And he's popped up on the scene. He's been baptized by John the Baptist. He's been uh, led out into the wilderness by the Holy Spirit. He's been tempted by the devil. He's resisted temptation. He comes back, starts his ministry, starts healing people, exercising demons, preaching about the kingdom of God and calling disciples. And to this point, he's already called three, Simon Peter and then the brothers, uh, James and John. And so we find ourselves here in Luke chapter 5, verse 27, as Jesus comes to call his fourth disciple a man called Levi. And so it says, after this, Jesus went out and saw a tax collector by the name of Levi sitting in his tax booth. Follow me, Jesus said to him. And Levi got up, left everything and followed him. Now, if you, if you weren't here last week or you haven't managed to catch up on the podcast yet, Matt preached a message which involved a character who was a tax collector. And we learned a lot about what tax collectors did, how they were perceived, what their status was in society. And the conclusion that we came to was that tax collectors 
were the lowest of the low. Tax collectors were perceived as the scum of society. And society, their very own people, were filled with disdain for them. Just to recap, here's a quote. It says, First century tax collectors represented the Roman Empire, which occupied and governed the promised land, but illegitimately so in the view of much of the Jewish populace. Tax collectors attained their posts by bidding against other applicants and competing for who could promise Rome the most revenue. The winning bidder would then take more from the people than he needed to fulfill his bid, keeping the difference. So you might be getting a picture here of why tax collectors were so hated, so looked down upon in society, why they were seen as immoral people. Well, let me give you three reasons why tax collectors were despised by their society. And I know this is kind of foreign for us because this isn't our context, but try and put yourself in the shoes of the day and resonate with this profile. So tax collectors were despised by society for three reasons. Firstly, because no one likes giving money to the government. Am I right? It's true in the first century. It's true in the 21st century. No one likes giving money to the government. And so no one likes that middleman who comes to collect the money that you have to give to the government. The second reason they were despised is because they worked for the enemy. You see, in those days, the Jewish people were under the oppressive regime of the Roman Empire. The Jewish people were a smaller population who were ruled over by the Roman Empire. And so these tax collectors were essentially, they were Jewish people who were then hired by the Romans to do their work and to collect the money and the revenue. And so essentially these tax collectors, they were traitors. They were working for the very people who oppressed us. They're working for the very people who we wish we were free of, who weren't ruling and lording over us. And thirdly, they were despised because it was common knowledge that they cheated people. See, they would make their own income by charging more tax than was required, and then they would keep the rest. And so a Jewish tax collector in those days was a lying, cheating thief, a traitor who was seen in society as someone who was sinful and had sold out his own, his or her own people for personal gain. And this is the kind of person that Jesus comes up to in their very place of work and says, hey, follow me. Remember, this is Jesus that we're talking about. He's not recruiting for like a, a motley band or some kind of, you know, rebellious campaign. We're talking about Jesus, the Son of God, the perfect one. This guy who showed up on the scene and people are already beginning to question, is he a prophet? Is he, is he a holy teacher? Is he a rabbi? And yet this is the very type of person that Jesus approaches and asks to follow him. This would have messed with the religious and moral paradigms of the day. And quite honestly, it should with us too. It doesn't compute. You see, it should mess with our paradigms because you might be one of two types of people. You might be someone who's unfamiliar with Jesus and perhaps you've lived your whole life thinking that Jesus came for people who are good and moral. 
Those are the types of people that Jesus came to call. And those are the only types of people who can follow Jesus and call themselves Christian and go to church. I used to work in retail. It was my second job out of high school, selling jeans. And um, we'd work like six to eight hour shifts. I was the only Christian in my workplace. And so we'd have a lot of conversation about life and hobbies, interests, and my colleagues, um, they knew that I was a Christian and that I went to church. And sometimes they'd ask me questions about it. Um, oh, like, is it really formal? Like, what kind of people go there? What do you wear? Is it like hymns and stuff like that? And one of my friends, Ali, as we would um, just hang out in between folding jeans for eight hours, um, <laughs> I, I invited her to church. And she would always give me the same response. She would smile politely and she'd say, oh, that's really nice of you, James. That's really thoughtful. But, um, you know, I just don't think church is really for me. I'm not really that kind of person. It's not really my scene. And, and, and she would never say exactly what she meant by that. But having spent a lot of time with her, I could read in between the lines, and I knew that what she really meant was, thanks, James, but, you know, I'm just not really a good person. Like, church is kind of full, full of, like, goody people who do, like, good things and behave. They're not rebellious. I'm not that kind of person. I knew that she thought she wasn't good enough. Or maybe you're the other type of person. Maybe you're familiar with Jesus and you've heard grace preached a thousand times. In fact, you grew up in church. You've been in the church for over 20 years and you've heard sermons and sat through Bible studies and you know that it's not about how good you are. It's about Jesus and what he did for you. And it's about grace and faith and the love of God. Yet despite all of that information that's in your head, on the regular, your heart still condemns you. You still feel anxious that you're not good enough. You still think that, you know, yeah, God may have sent Jesus to die for me. He may have accepted me, but like, he doesn't really like me very much. In fact, he's actually a little bit reluctant and I've got this kind of habit that I just haven't yet kicked and... I just know that if I keep messing up, he'll probably give me the flick. How easy it is to say and profess the gospel, but to live by our own merit and our own performance. And under both these different approaches, under both these views, is the assumption that Jesus is looking for good or moral people. But what this ought to show us is that that's not true because Levi isn't good or moral. By any standard of the day, by every perspective of his time, he is not a good or moral person. In fact, he works a shameful profession and he cheats and lies and steals from people on the daily. I mean, he doesn't even do it in private. Like some of us, like we sin in private and then we come to church and we're like, I'm like really Christian. But his job is to lie and cheat and steal. It's on display for everyone to see. And so if Jesus is all about calling good and moral people, then Levi is an unlikely candidate. He doesn't fit the bill. And so the question that we're left asking is, then why does Jesus choose to call Levi? 
And the answer is this, because Jesus's call isn't dependent on your goodness. Jesus's call isn't dependent on your goodness. And that is good news if you know that you're someone who is imperfect, who's got mess in your life, who maybe is a little bit screwed up as well, just like the rest of us. Because the truth is, we're all a little bit more like Levi than we would dare admit. I mean, we may not work a shameful profession like he did, but we've all lied and cheated and stolen. You don't need a job title to do those things. We've all lusted. We're all selfish. We're, we're proud. It's in our human nature. It's, it's part of our human tendencies. And don't get me wrong, from time to time, we do do good things, but that doesn't innately make us good people. And I'm not saying this in judgment over you. I'm saying this as one of us. You see, sometimes I know there's that person who sits and hears the message and you start saying these things and this defensiveness starts to rise up and it's like, don't tell me I'm not a good person or prove it, prove, prove that I'm not a good person. And I don't know how to prove it for you, but this is how I prove it for myself. I've got regrets. I've got shame in my life. I've got guilt in my life. And I know that even though sometimes I might do good things, that doesn't innately make me a good person. But the good news is that Jesus' call isn't dependent on our goodness. And just like how he called Levi, Jesus is calling you today. I wonder if you knew that. That just like how Jesus walked up to and approached Levi, he comes to us and he says, follow me, follow me. And notice how Levi responds. Notice what Levi doesn't do. Well, Levi doesn't, he doesn't question why Jesus is calling him. He doesn't explain how he's actually a bad person and Jesus got the wrong guy. No, 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 Jesus, no, no, I'm, I'm, not, I'm, not, I'm not good enough. Now, he doesn't do that. And he doesn't ignore Jesus or pretend that he's better off on his own. No, it says Levi got up, left everything and followed him. It then goes on to say that then Levi held a great banquet for Jesus at his house. And a large crowd of tax collectors and others were eating with them. But the Pharisees and the teachers of the law who belonged to their sect complained to his disciples. Why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? I imagine that that complaint was more of a criticism was more of a judgment. Why, why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? And I tried to um, do some research to figure out exactly what kind of people, who Luke is referring to when he says sinners in that category. And I couldn't find exactly uh, what he is referring to or who he is referring to rather, but based on other descriptions of Jesus and who he associated with, what he was criticized for in Luke's gospel, it's safe to say that this group of sinners 
likely included other tax collectors, prostitutes and sex workers, drunkards, and other people who outwardly were seen to to be breaking God's law. And remarkably, these are the people that Jesus eats with, which only reinforces the fact that Jesus' call isn't dependent on your goodness. You see, not only does Jesus call a sinner like Levi to follow him, he then goes over to Levi's house and accepts his invitation for dinner and eats with all of Levi's sinner friends. See, Levi has, uh, Jesus has no problem associating with, being around, hanging out with, eating with people who were seen as sinful and rebellious and irreligious. And again, this is good news for those of us who know that we're not perfect and we don't have it all together because we are the types of people that Jesus comes to call and not only that, he would sit and share a meal with us. He would look at us in the eyes, listen, converse, eat. And so what do we take away from this picture from this description of Jesus and who he ate with. Well, as we look at Jesus' example, there's two takeaways for us today, two challenges. And the first is, for those in the room who follow Jesus, the first is to make sure that we don't take this description of Jesus and make it mean something other than what the Bible actually says. We need to be careful that we don't stretch out this idea that Jesus hung out with sinners to begin justifying our own sin and our own behavior. See, I'm preaching to myself here. If you're a millennial like me, or perhaps you're a generation Z, then you are what I like to call the grace generation. It means we grew up on preaching and teaching that was about grace. We love all the stories like Jesus uh, you know, interaction with the woman caught in adultery or the tax collector um, or other sinful people. We love the aspects of Jesus' character, like his love and mercy and compassion and grace. And we hate, or we don't hate, it's probably too strong, (laughs) getting a bit excited here. We find uncomfortable and we shy away from the parts of Jesus where he talks about, or where the scriptures talk about, holiness, repentance, judgment, justice. You see, we love Jesus, the friend of sinners, because we know he comes to us with grace and compassion, but we find much more jarring and difficult to reconcile Jesus, the just judge, the king of the world. But notice that this passage, while it says that Jesus hung out with sinners, it doesn't say that Jesus himself sinned or gave into the peer pressure around him. I wonder, have you ever been out uh, on a Saturday night, mixed group of people, Christians, non-Christians, maybe you're at a party or a wedding, and you know everyone's having a good time, the drinks are flowing, People just enjoying themselves. And, you know, there's a bunch of you, you go to church together, so you know you'll see each other the next day. And... Um, The drinks are flowing, a few people just get a little bit loose, and there's always that awkward moment where you kind of think to yourself, or maybe you catch someone else's eye, uh, and you think like, 
ooh, like what's the line between like just being buzzing and being drunk? Like, like, like what's, that, what's, what's that line? Like, is, is this okay? Like, is, is this all right? And then you have that Christian friend who normally is a, a dude because guys make bad jokes and he'll come out and he'll say, but bro, didn't Jesus turn water into wine? It's like his first miracle. John 2, read your Bible. And people kind of like, people chuckle and then just keep doing what you're doing, feeling a bit awkward thinking I'll see you tomorrow um, at church. And I'm thinking to myself like, yes, yes, Jesus did turn water into wine, but he didn't get drunk off it. And so often and how easy and tempting it is for us to take this picture and say that because Jesus hung out with people who lived a sinful life, it's okay for us to participate in those same things because really we're just being like Jesus. And yet when I read my Bible, I don't see anywhere in the Scriptures, anywhere in the Gospels where it says that Jesus routinely got drunk, but that was okay because he was just trying to show his friends and help them feel comfortable. Like it doesn't say anywhere in the Gospels that, you know, Jesus was really casual and relaxed about his own sexual purity because he wanted his non-Christian friends to understand that it's about relationship and not religion. And yet we do these things and we justify them. Whether because we're just using the Gospel as, as a license for sin or because we think in some weird way that that's actually going to enhance our mission. Don't get me wrong. We want to imitate this. We want to be where the people are, like Jesus was. But being just a little bit more cool and a little bit worldly is not a good mission strategy. That's not what makes our faith attractive to people. Like people who don't know Jesus don't look at the Christian who gets drunk and high or whatever it is because people struggle with different things. But the, the, people, the person who doesn't know Jesus doesn't look at that Christian and go, oh, wow, they're just like a little bit worldly and kind of like relatable enough. And that's really making Jesus really appealing to me. So I'll come to church and then, wow, that person gets saved and they're in gospel community and then bang. No, that doesn't happen. People don't become Christians because what we're offering them is exactly what they have with Sunday mornings sprinkled in and some nice atmospheric worship music. People become Christians because they see us living totally, radically different lives. And what we have is attractive because our joy and our satisfaction and our completeness isn't found in circumstances or substances or sex or people, but is found in someone called Jesus. And it's unexplainable, but they see it and they know that they want that. And that's why they become Christians. Someone might be asking, yeah, but didn't Jesus say to the woman caught in adultery, I don't condemn you? Yes. Yes, he totally did. And we aren't to condemn those who live differently than we are. But he also said to her, go now and leave your life of sin. She didn't stay as she was after she met Jesus. You see, Jesus was a friend of sinners, but he didn't participate in his friend's sin. And this is a challenge for all of us, myself included, to guard ourselves and to look in the mirror and be real when we're tempted to be like, oh, like I'm just being in the world 
but are we actually being of the world as well? So that's the first challenge, the first takeaway. And the second takeaway is, is this. It's a question. Who will be with you at the table this year? Who will be with you at the table this year? Or will the people that you share meals with this year look more like a holy huddle of Christians? Or will it be a mixed group of people, including sinners and people who've made mistakes and whose lives are messy and who do things that are different to what you do? Because you see, church, if the only people that we ever spend time with believe exactly what we believe, then we're doing something wrong. If the only people that in 2020 we will share a meal with are people who live how we live and think how we live and worship who or what we worship, then church, we are doing something wrong. So let's not just admire Jesus, let's follow his example. Because one of the primary aspects of Jesus' ministry was eating with people. He ate with everyone. He ate with his disciples. He ate with religious people. And he ate with sinners. And so who will be with you at the table this year? You know, I wonder if our call to do whatever it takes to bring the wayward home starts this year by sharing a meal with someone who thinks differently to you, who lives differently to you. And this is something that we can all do because maybe not all of us are preachers. Maybe not all of us are pastors. Maybe not all of us feel like we have the answers to all of the questions that people are gonna ask. And so we say, oh, we can't do those things. So we, we can't you know, open up our lives to people and seek to reach out to people with the love of Jesus, but we can all eat. Can't we? We can all eat. We can all invite someone else to eat with us. We can all sit at a table. We can all listen and open up our hearts and our lives and ask thoughtful questions, not because that's what we should do and we're trying to evoke some kind of response, but because we genuinely care about people like Jesus did. And we want to genuinely love people like Jesus did. Who are you going to share a meal with this year? In the workplace, at a restaurant, in your home? Imagine what it would look like if our church was the kind of church where this year we had hundreds of meals with people who don't follow Jesus. Imagine what it would look like if we were that kind of church where we welcomed people into our homes and we cooked for them and we made such a public impression on them like how Jesus did on Levi that they actually invited us into their homes to share a meal with us. Imagine if in every new believer's story was a common theme of hospitality and a shared experience, which was an invitation to attend a gospel community's dinner party. That's so achievable, inviting people to have a meal. And I know for myself, the things that hold me back are not, not having the right answers or the right qualifications, but actually apathy and laziness. 
Who's going to be at your table? Who are you going to be at the table with this year? And so the religious leaders of the day, they ask Jesus why he eats with sinners, and this is his response. Jesus answered them, verse 31. It is not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. You see, Jesus states his mission and notice the metaphor that he uses here. It is not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. He's saying that he is a doctor. He is the doctor. And just like any doctor worth their degree, they don't primarily come to help people who are healthy, but they come to help people who are sick. And then Jesus repeats himself in different terms. He says, I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. See, Jesus is saying that he has come to provide spiritual healing to those who are spiritually sick and those who are sinners. But here is the thing. Every human who has ever existed apart from Jesus falls into that category. Every human who has ever existed apart from Jesus falls into that category. And Jesus knows this too. Later in Luke, when he's having a conversation with Jewish people, and they're going to ask him about what it means to be good. And he goes on to say, no one is good. There is no one good apart from God. You see, Jesus knows that no one is actually righteous. No one innately by virtue of their own goodness or morality is in right standing with a perfect God. And so everyone needs the antidote. Everyone needs to make an appointment to see the doctor. Everyone needs the healing that he offers. It's not a question of whether you think you're actually healthy or sick. He's giving you the diagnosis. It's a question of whether you realize that you are sick. You see, this is the plot twist. Jesus doesn't come to call healthy people because spiritually speaking, there are no healthy people. Jesus doesn't come to call righteous people because there are no righteous people. And so the question for you this morning, as we come to a close, is have you diagnosed yourself correctly? Have you diagnosed yourself correctly? Have you recognized that you fit the description? Because the religious leaders of the day, they hadn't yet had this recognition. They hadn't yet realized that they were in need. I mean, that's why they were so proud, isn't it? That's why they commented and criticized and, and stood in judgment over Jesus having a meal with these people. Look at this guy. Why does he, isn't he supposed to be a prophet or, or a, a rabbi? Why does he eat with these sinners? with these filthy people, scum. But what they didn't realize was that they were sinners all the same. You see, the people Jesus ate with may have been guilty of being unrighteous, but the religious leaders and those who looked on in judgment were guilty, equally guilty, but of being self-righteous. 
Both were sinners. Both groups were spiritually sick. Both groups in need of a savior. And chances are this morning you fall into one of those two categories. I think it's a pretty helpful way of actually diagnosing what people are generally like. It's like we're rebellious or we're religious. We're unrighteous or we're self-righteous. And chances are you fall into one of those two categories. You're unrighteous, which means that you've rebelled against God, that you've actually, you've rejected not only Him, but His good plan and His good purposes for your life, because they are good. He wants the best for you. Or you're self-righteous, which means you've judged others and thought better of yourself than you ought to, all while unknowingly, unknowingly not realizing that you fall horrendously short of the only standard that actually matters, which is God's. But whichever one of those you are this morning, the good news that I have for you today is that Jesus came for you. Jesus came for you. He came to fix you. He came to give you the healing that you need. He came to call you, not just for forgiveness, but to follow Him, to know Him, to be His friend, to be a child of God. You see, Jesus came to call sinners, which we all are, into a brand new life, both now and when we die. And that new life is on offer to anyone who would hear the call and follow Him. No matter what you have done, no matter who you are, whether you're unrighteous, whether you've been self-righteous, will you answer His call? Will you come to Him this morning and answer His call, knowing that it doesn't depend on your goodness or on your morality, but that His call is freely available to every person who is willing to admit their need? And so this morning, I want to lead us in a time of response. And there's two groups of people that I want to pray for. And I want to encourage you that when we come to church, we don't just come to absorb information. Like I know sometimes, you know, that might be the type of perhaps tradition that we grew up in or what we used to. And it's just so easy for us, isn't it? To just come in, get a seat, normally not in the front. And, uh, you know, we'll stand up, we sing the songs, and we sit down, we, we listen to the message, we absorb the information. You know, is this guy preaching heretical? He's not? Okay, cool, tick. Um, and then we leave. But Jesus didn't come to call people into a faith that's just intellectual. It's not all cerebral. He calls you to follow Him into a brand new life, into a relationship, into an adventure. He wants to know you. And so as we come to a time of response, I want to encourage you that if Jesus is calling you this morning, if God has been speaking to you in your heart, don't brush that off. D don't brush that off. Oh, that's just emotion. We don't do that in church. Yeah, yeah, we do because God gave us those emotions. That's the Holy Spirit calling you, speaking to you. And I want to encourage you to respond this morning. And so the first group of people I want to pray for is anyone who wants to have an opportunity this morning to respond to Jesus's call. You might be unrighteous or maybe you're self-righteous, but the good news is it doesn't matter because whichever you are, Jesus still wants you. 
He's still calling you. He still wants you to follow Him. He came for you to call people just like you into a brand new life. See, Jesus came to die on the cross in your place so that through His death on your behalf, you could find the healing that you need for your spiritual sickness. And so right now, I'm just going to ask everyone in the room if, if we'd bow our heads together and close our eyes. Bow our heads and close our eyes. And if this morning you want to answer Jesus' call and you want to begin following Him, then with every, eye, with every head bowed and every eye closed, I'm just going to ask you right now if you would just raise your hand. If you want to begin following Jesus today, this isn't magic, it's not a super spiritual thing, but you know, when our hearts move in the direction of God, it's good to make a physical sign of response as well. Thank you, I see that hand. Thank you. Any other hands, people who want to start following Jesus today? Thank you. You can put your hand down. If we would just pray, all of us together, in, our, in the quietness of our hearts, lead us in this prayer. Thank you, Jesus, that you came for me, to call me, to know me, to die for me. Forgive me for going my own way and help me to follow you now. Amen. And as we keep our eyes closed, there's a second group of people that I want to pray for this morning. And it's for Christians in the room who maybe you're already following Jesus, but you feel a sense of conviction about maybe one of two things. Maybe that you have been justifying your sin in the name of this kind of worldly Jesus who actually isn't the picture. He's not the real Jesus that we get in the Bible, but sometimes he's the easier Jesus to follow. And you know that you've been justifying your sin and making light of it taking God's grace for granted. Or maybe you're someone who you realize that in this story, you're actually like the religious leaders. You've been living with an attitude of self-righteousness, going to church on Sundays, but seeing yourself as better than those who live and think and behave differently to you. If you fall into one of those two camps, I ask you just to raise your hand now. It's an acknowledgement so I can pray for you. If you feel like you've been justifying your sin, thank you. Thank you in the back. See those hands. If you feel like you've been justifying your sin or living self-righteously, thank you. See another hand. Thank you. Any other hands? Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. you put your hands down. And let me lead us in this prayer. Thank you, Jesus, for dying for me. Forgive me for justifying my sin and taking your grace for granted or for my self-righteous attitudes that have led me to judge others despite my own sin. Please forgive me and help me to turn from these attitudes and actions. Help me to follow you now. Amen.